So, Zach, it's been a while, and you're asking a question about Sangha, and possibly the easy way to get started with it, it would be first to define what it is, and then talk about some of the, the value in it. First off, uh, the, the Pali word Sangha actually uh, is part of the triple gem. Uh, and that the, the, the triple gem, actually, they, there are ceremonies that are practiced throughout Buddhist countries and in Buddhist um, temples uh, that uh, in, the, in the, um, the ritual, people take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, uh, and that refuge is completely different than reliance. In fact, uh, in Christianity, uh, they want you to have reliance upon God and reliance upon Jesus. And that um, other than basically doing what you're told to do or following the rules, as well as their magical stories, is all the kind of Dhamma there is in Christianity. But still in Christianity, they talk about fellowship and, uh, and meeting together, people who are like-minded. And that this is actually uh, more valuable than people give credit for. Um, the problem with, with it is that um, it depends upon who you have fellowship with or who you're associating with. But it's important also to recognize that it's actually instinctual, that we are social animals, just like dogs are social, that insects, not so social, alligators, not so social, even though there's a lot of alligators in the, uh, uh, the river, that doesn't mean they're having much to do with each other. In fact, they're completely within competition and they don't have any real community. Okay. And you could see that that would get started because um, alligators, crocodiles, turtles, etc. they lay eggs, even fish lay eggs and then leave the eggs to hatch on their own. But higher animals require community and cooperation for even one individual in that in that uh, species to survive. Okay, so in fact, it's kind of a survival issue, motherly instinct. We also call it the herding instinct or the nesting instinct. And so. Um, the issue about Sangha then is making sure that we are um, dealing with our society in a correct and appropriate way. In other words, we want to uh, associate with people who are worthy of our association because who we associate with rubs off and it rubs off big time. Uh, an example, oh gosh, there's just tens of thousands of examples of this. One, and so I tend to go for very big examples 
but you can see it in small ways, okay? A clear example is, is that if a child is raised in a household that has one language, he's going to learn that one language. If he is raised in a household where there are multiple languages, then that child will learn to speak multiple languages. But let's get a little bit more subtle than that. If a child is raised in an environment in a household that has domestic violence, then he is going to grow up and be an adult in a household who, that is familiar with domestic violence. Right, it's a cycle. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That in fact, there's some place in the Bible where it says that the sins of the father will be visited upon his, his heirs or his children for seven generations. Now, with the calculation kind of thing that we do, that's 140 years, and I'd say that the seven is wrong that in fact that some of the mistakes that humans have been making and passing down to their children have been going on for more than 10,000 years. Which means a whole lot more than just seven generations, hundreds of generations of people doing the same wrong thing over and over and over again because they were taught to do it that way. And we are uh, capable of learning mostly when we're children. When we are children, we imprint. And much of the learning that we do is done in childhood. And that um, the whole then teaching of the Buddha about Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda is for us to come out of the wrong behavior that we were taught when we were children and we're too stupid or too ignorant to figure out that what we're being taught is a bunch of crap. Okay, and so that's where the Dhamma comes in. The Dhamma comes in in the sense that we can begin to see what crap we were taught and we can start to come out of that. And when the mind does come out of that crap in that moment, there is the Buddha the awakened one, the one who sees the crap that they're in and comes out of it. Okay. Um, but Sangha has an extraordinary value to that, that if you are associating with nobles from your childhood, then more than likely you will pick up many noble traits very quickly, very early in life. And if you are associating with nobles in adulthood, then you will begin to pick up traits from them also. That this is really what Sangha is about, is for us to intentionally place ourselves in environments that are wholesome and valuable for us. Okay, and, and that you can see it kind of in, in uh, stages, except that it's not one stage and then another stage, but whether these stages work together. Um, and the two uh, points that I'm making is the distinction between um, seclusion and Sangha, because they work together. And that the seclusion is really necessary for us to get away from all influences from other people mostly unwholesome, to get away from everything so that we can begin to pay attention to what's happening with our own mind. 
But when we come back out of seclusion, when we begin to figure out what's going on, then the correct thing to do is to start associating with people who were doing that same process or have already gone through that process. So that's what um, Sangha is really for. It's for coming uh, out of our uh, dukkha through the wisdom that we gain from ourselves by our own internal investigation and from the wisdom that we get from others who have already gone or are also going through that same process. Right, it's shared or there's a, a cumulative effect that is created. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let me give you two examples of that. One would be, um, a child of three years old is the example, and he's got two different environments possible for him. Many three-year-old children are put, because their two parents work, are put into daycare, which means that they're put around a whole lot of other three-year-olds. Okay. Okay. And so you have a daycare nursery worker who is probably not a PhD in physics nor are they educated in any particular trade of value. And, then, and so you wind up generally having mediocre people who are the daycare operators. And not only that, but the worst part of it is, is that uh, the three-year-olds are more than likely going to be learning from other three-year-olds than from adults. Okay, and the adults that they're learning from are not high quality. So let's use the next example is a three year old who is surrounded, perhaps in a different culture, like in Thai culture, in a very family oriented society to where he, uh, the three year old has both grandmas, both grandpas, great uncles, great aunts, um, older cousins, older siblings. And so now instead of having a three-year-old that's with 20 or 30 other three-year-olds, you have a three-year-old that is with 20 or 30 adults. And our life experiences are going to be completely different. Because three-year-olds compete with each other, they take each other's toys, they uh, hit each other. And in a, a family, a large family that has a, 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 a three-year-old in the family, the whole family is going to be nurturing that three-year-old. Right. Okay. So we can now grow up in that same three-year-old's example and say, well, now that three-year-old is still dealing with the three-year-olds that he was raised with, his high school uh, classmates or university students that he goes with or when he gets out of college and goes to school or excuse me goes and gets a job the people at the work are the same class of three-year-olds right they're just all grown up but they're still dealing with each other the way that they dealt with each other when they were three years old competition fighting fighting 
having um, the three-year-old has an army truck, but the adult has a real army truck, and he's going to go around using it or maybe a, a bigger weapon. So, then uh, in fact, when I was a child in the 1950s, one of the primary kinds of toys that boys played with were toy guns, cap pistols, all kinds of things. Uh, and so uh, the baby boomers of my age now are just enthralled with guns the way that they were when they were five years old. Okay, so we're talking about Sangha in the sense of the things that we associate with, we become. So now let's have the possibility that the people that you're associating with are uh, Buddhist monks. That in fact, the Buddhist monks, that's one of the trainings that, they, that, that is there, that the monk will go into, uh, into seclusion and spend most of the day alone. But when he comes together with the other monks, he's gathering with top quality people. And so in a way you'd say, then that means that you're actually intending to be on their best behavior. To where the three-year-old that's raised with three-year-olds then associates with people who associated when they were three years old with three-year-olds, right? And so we're not on our best behavior when we're in a bar. In sure. fact, when we're in a bar drinking, we're on our worst behavior. We're going to kind of let it out. Another idea with that is, is that society begins uh, to have social rules, and every one of us keeps those social rules until we get home, and then we let the violence out, that we are, we are worst to the ones we love because we can kind of get away with it we think. Okay, so with these two examples of the three-year-old that spent all of his uh, uh, young adult, uh, young childhood with others of his age versus someone who is raised in a family of adults, now we want to put that into practice in the sense of that we want to start associating with people who are like-minded but the like-minded now, uh, the like-mindedness is chose by wisdom rather than by happenstance. And I've had many, many people call and say that, oh, I really want to practice meditation. I really want to practice the Dhamma, but here I live in Cincinnati, Ohio or wherever, and I don't know anyone who has any Dhamma at all. Hmm. Now, that's not true in Thailand because every village has watch with Buddhist monks. Finding a Buddhist monk to associate with is quite easy in um, Thailand. But Westerners who come to Thailand have a number of issues. One is cultural. Another is um, language. Another is food. And the culture is probably the biggest one. Well, the Westerners are going to have the same kind of trouble if they go uh, not to a foreign country like Thailand, but they go to a Thai Wat that's uh, in the city that they're in and that um, 
they have that same problem of culture, language, food, etc., like that. Because in fact, the um, uh, the Thai Wats in the United States are intentionally set up to be cultural centers. The people who speak English in the world, they go to the watch so that they can speak their original uh, Thai language. That's why Thai language is so heavy done in Thai watch. Even though most of the people speak English, they don't speak English there. If they can get away with it, they want to speak Thai. They want it to be the cultural thing. The same thing is true about food. That in fact, uh, you Christians, you might know something about this. We'll often have a thing called a covered dish supper, where the women on Wednesday evening or maybe Saturday night they'll bring some food, a great big dish of, let us say, beans with bacon, and somebody else will bring a whole bunch of fried chicken, and somebody else will bring uh, potato salad and that kind of thing. They do that at the Thai Wats also, except that they bring Thai food intentionally. That in fact, the Lao is uh, the strangest all, that I, the way that I would say it is that I had always remained a student of Lao food. I never quite got used <laughs> to it. <laughs> and that even when I first got introduced to the, to the food that was at Watso and Milk, I referred to it as roadkill. So, um, the, the, the food and the culture and the language and a lot of stuff like that makes um, the Dhamma difficult to find for Westerners. And the best thing would be for the Westerners within their own culture, within their own language, within their own food systems, to still find very high quality people to associate with. And that seems to be completely unavailable. Of all of the Buddhism that's come to the West, that seems to be maybe about half and half would be Dhamma. That half the Dhamma that comes is valuable Dhamma, and about half the Dhamma is just stuff that's accumulated around Buddhism from other cultures. They bring their culture with them to the temple. Okay, and so there's a lot of magical beliefs that are held uh, within Buddhism. So let's say that the Buddhism that's come to the West is about half Dhamma and half culture. Also, because it's only halfway, very few people get great advantage out of that. And so there's very few or no Buddhas within the Western culture. And yet, the one point that's so badly needed is the Dhamma excuse me, is the Sangha, because if the Buddhas uh, are very few and the Dhamma is uh, half-baked, then the, uh, the last thing to happen would be Sangha. And so this is the reason why I promote Sangha so much. And the two places that we're going to get Sangha is to get Westerners into the Thai temples to get them around some noble monks. That in fact, we're having some success right along with that. Um, uh, getting people involved with uh, 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 the various watts that are, uh, that are local to them. But not all of the watts are going to be noble watts. Much of them are. 
Most of them are. But uh, still the monks there will have cultural things that they bring to. For instance, in Thailand, long hair and beards. Well, the Thai people, they don't grow beards. I mean, they're South Asian. You know, Indians, they have very, very scanty uh, uh, hair on the face. They're not thick, thickly bearded, nor is their hair thick. And so um, when, when people see Westerners come as tourists, they see them as kind of a hairy beast. Okay, so when that same hairy beast is very, very now interested in the Dhamma and he wants to go find the Dhamma at the temple, unfortunately, many of the people at the temple are going to see, oh, just another Westerner, just another hairy beast. I wonder what he's doing here at the temple and they don't have much time for them. Okay, so these are all little kinds of things you can get by if you're careful. The important thing is, is to find out which monks are at the watch that are really worth associating with and then making friends with them. But also, uh, we can, in fact, have a Sangha of Westerners online that I think that the online Sanghas are beginning to get started and that we have some value there because we're associating now with others who were intending to practice the Dhamma. And so uh, that's unlike a Buddhist group, say on Reddit or on, um, uh, uh, gosh, all kinds of places. Uh, there's a lot of people who are trying to make money off of the Dhamma rather than spreading it as a, um, uh, a valuable uh, gift that they can give. And so uh, Sangha is kind of hard to come by in the West. But let's look at the value of it in a way that there are many, many, I would say most of the nobles in Thailand, and there are, you know, 20, 30, 40,000, maybe more uh, of no nobles. They didn't actually become noble by strict practice of meditation, nor did they become noble because of the strict rule following that they were doing, but they became noble because they were associating with other nobles. And so the idea is, is that if a young man becomes a monk, after 20 years, it doesn't matter what his practices were, it doesn't matter what rules he broke in the early days. It doesn't matter what his lifestyle was because he's associating with nobles and tends to find noble friends and stays with noble. He will become noble without actually having any formal sitting meditation practice. Wow. Why? Because um, uh, you could say that a drop of seawater can be drunk. It can be. It does not have to be desalinated. All you have to do is put it into a gallon of water that's pure, and that drop of seawater gets lost. The salt is not important. <laughs> okay, so 
by associating with nobles, by our, our nobly speaking of the Dhamma, thinking about the Dhamma, talking about the Dhamma with nobles, actually has an enormous benefit. And you can also see that many people in the West are really dedicated meditators, and they spend two, three, four, five, six hours a day, and they're still not making much change. Because they're missing the Sangha element. They're missing not only the Sangha, but they're only practicing half the Dhamma. Sure, a watered down or like a muddy. A muddied version of it, perhaps a magical that in fact, quite a number of people want to practice meditation to gain magical powers. Yeah. <laughs> Spiritual powers, showing off. <laughs> Doing mental card tricks, I suppose. Yeah. And so making, this, go ahead. I was going to say, it's making me think about the quote of, uh, you are the product of the five people that you spend the most time with. Precisely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know who said that, but it's got some wisdom. Yeah, no, I can't can't remember where I picked it up, but. Well, it's it's got true wisdom in there, mm -hmm. so. If you intentionally find five people who are worth spending time with, then you will get the benefit of that. And if you find five people who um, are at the same level or even worse off than you are, then um, you're not going to get much value out of that. So. People who, in fact, uh, who want to quit drinking alcohol, if they join AA, they're much more likely to quit drinking simply because one of the requirements of AA is that you stop associating with the drunks that you were associating with and start associating with AA people who are like-minded trying to come out of alcoholism. Okay, so you could go so far as to say that Sangha is the number one important ingredient that makes um, uh, AA successful. And at AA, even though the psychologists have studied left, right, and center, all the stuff that AA is doing, they're kind of missing out on that point. Right. Because it's not what AA, uh, it's not their doctrine, it's not their dharma, it's the fact that you could get the drunks, stop associating with other drunks and start associating them with people who want to come out of being a drunk. Yeah, for, for me, it's making me think about the importance of having role models or, or clear examples, because you could have the same teaching that's being offered, but if you don't have people that are embodying the teaching, then there is something that is, is missed or not, not transferred. That's, that's exactly right. But in fact, that's expected that if someone is going to be a religious leader and mm -hmm. is talking about uh, high morality and all of those kind of things, when he is found out to be a hypocrite, Right. 
then he is punished severely. He loses his job, you know, uh, that in fact they're much more likely to forgive a philanderer preacher than one who is going to stand up in the pulpit and start talking the truth about Christianity. That I would imagine that a, uh, that a, a well-known famous preacher could stand up in the pulpit and within one paragraph destroy his uh, family, lose his house, lose his car, lose his status, lose his church and everything by just saying that you don't need a Jesus. You can, in fact, straighten out your own mind. Yeah. If he said something like that, he's out of business because the whole crust of Christianity is, oh, you need our sweet Jesus. If you don't have a plastic Jesus on the dashboard of your truck, you're going to wreck that truck. You're going to land up uh, hitting a tree. But if you have that plastic Jesus, everything's going to be okay, right? So they don't like it when a hypocrite comes in, and yet most of the people who become preachers don't associate with nobles as preachers. They're associating with all the other, um, let us say, um, hypocrites. And so they learn to be a hypocrite by associating with other hypocrites. If we can find a way to uh, find some nobles to associate with, then we've got a chance. And what you were mentioning, uh, Zach, was exactly correct, that people do look up for role models. We got started with that when we were infants. We take on, as an infant, we take on teachers and parents and older kids and siblings and, and uncles as role models. That's where we learn all of this stuff. The role that we play was modeled by someone. And we, um, at that level, it, it's called um, in uh, scientific language of um, instincts, it's called imprinting. Okay. So now it's time to go get some really good imprinting. Let's go start associating with people that are worth associating with. So that we can get some uh, adult kind of imprinting. We can take on better role models. And in fact, one of the most dangerous things that's happening in the United States now is people are taking politicians as role models. Christianity was a whole lot better off when they were taking pre uh, uh, preachers as role models. But now that they're taking politicians as role models, the whole, <laughs> the whole southern part of the United States is literally falling apart because they intentionally have shysters as politicians, and then they take the shysters as role models. Hmm. So that at one time, it at one time it was not, um, a, let us say, a politically successful move to lie, to get caught lying, to get caught at doing something like Herschel Walker right now is uh, 
though he is very strongly, strongly anti-abortion, he's now been caught with having secret children and now most recently even having uh, it proven that he paid for a girlfriend's abortion. And yet he is still okay with his constituency. That it's okay for them that he is two-faced. That's their role models. And so they look up to their role models. One of the ways that that happened with him is because he was a sports star and people take sports stars as role models. And so he's come out of the sports star, keeping that role model with him. And yet he's acting like a complete shyster. And yet he's still a role model. Mm And so this whole idea of Sangha is let's find good role models. Let's use what wisdom we have to find out who is and what we should be associating with so that we no longer associate with drunks. We no longer associate with hypocrites. We no longer associate with liars. We want to deal with people who are wise and speak the truth rather than stupid and commit acts of violence. And yet violence is part of our role model system. I mean, look at the movies. You could say that the movies have kind of twisted the minds of humans because the movies always have role models or heroes that are violent. Mm -hmm. And so by taking those role models, we take on that kind of violence. I mean, how many men, in fact, it's kind of a joke, how many guys do you know of that dress up like, (laughs) especially (laughs) Spider-Man? A lot. They take him as a role model, right? And it's just non-existent movie, Hollywood um, role model. Those people are not real. And so Sangha is basically after we have people who are together, who know what through wisdom, know what a good role model is, then they begin to attract themselves to that role model. That's what happened with Bhikkhu Buddhadasa big time, was that he wound up being a huge role model, literally now millions of people in Thailand. Yeah, I, part of my question is how do I, how do I identify um, a good model? And it's, it's through wisdom, people that are wise, people that speak the truth. Not the obvious, obviously not drunks or hypocrites or people that are engaging in, in violence. But yeah, it seems like there's some some discernment in in picking your <laughs> your role models. Mm-hmm. Well, I have three possibilities for that. Hmm. The three possibilities are um, the first one that I'll mention has been kind of in abeyance because of COVID, that in fact, COVID has wreaked havoc in many, many places all along, but it really uh, had the quality that I stopped inviting people to come to Thailand. But now that um, 
COVID is over and the government has relaxed it, we've got several people. And in fact, John's on his way here now. Eric has, you probably read Eric's story. Wow, what a marvelous thing. That he's actually been, uh, he's found a really top quality Achan that's going to take him to Royette with the idea of um, uh, ordaining as a Salmonera. And so that's what he is doing. Uh, I have another student who is at Wat Cao Tum now. Uh, he's been there for about two months. Um, uh, Robert is planning on coming by the middle of the month. Oh, wonderful. So things are beginning to happen back here in, in Thailand with people wanting to come and get around some people because I know quite a number of nobles here that we can uh, connect you up with. Hmm. Including yeah. Achan Po and Dama Vitu and uh, um, um, Achan Santi is the one who is Eric is with. So that's one of, one of the three. The second of the three would be Westerners who can uh, find a local temple. If they know how to get by many of the difficulties there, because the difficulties that you would have in getting into a Taiwan would be also there in America, except that I don't know all of the abbots of all of the Watts. That in fact, Achan Reet in um, uh, Rama in um, uh, Seattle, he says that there are now more than 200 Taiwats in the United States, just all over the place. And I already know that there's 150 or more of uh, other Asian Watts, like uh, Cambodian, Laotian, Vietnamese. In fact, there's probably more Vietnamese temples and Watts than there are um, Thai. So getting our guys into the Watt, but you have to know that there are some cultural things that we have to deal with on both sides. But I think that sometimes people uh, will hear my advice and go to the Watt but when they go, they're dressed in a way or they've got a lot of face hair and all of that kind of stuff. And so the Thai monks say, oh, this is just a hippie that has just come by. He's not really interested in the Dhamma. So we have to do something to really get the monk's attention. One of the ways to do that is by mentioning Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, but in the Thai language, they don't use that name. They use Putatat. Can I hear that one more time? Putatat, P-U-T-T-A-T-A, Putatat. It's the same word in the Pali, it's just the Thai pronunciation. The B's and the P's are kind of mixed up. The T's and the D's are kind of mixed up. The T, the S becomes a T. The last syllable gets dropped off, the ah. So, uh, language changes like that. Um, but having a picture of Achan Bhikkhu to show them all, that's a good way of uh, getting through um, uh, the naming problem. Hmm. Uh, now, an example of what we're talking about is, is that Kishan went to several of the watch in Chicago and he wound up making a good friend with uh, Pratep 
And when I asked Pratip myself, because he, I mean, um, <laughs> Keyshawn actually got uh, Anchan uh, um, Pratip to come on to, to the Skype group with us. Oh, fun. And so a couple of weeks ago, Pratip was uh, uh, on the, uh, the Saturday morning group, which is uh, Friday night in the West. And I asked him originally, do you know Bhikkhu Buddhadasa? And you know what his answer was? Very strange. He says, who does not know who is Bhikkhu Buddhadasa? Well, that's pretty cultural right there. Okay, that's a cultural bias right there. My answer to that is all of the people who live in Chicago. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, he's, but he's in a cultural um, enclave. That in his cultural enclave, everybody knows Bhikkhu Buddhadasa. Right. Rather than the enclave of whoever calls, we don't know what they know. Most of the people who call me, they've never heard of Bhikkhu Buddhadasa. But the point that I'm making here is, is that by reaching out, to the monks at various watts, they will be enthusiastic to take on good Western students if the student, uh, let us say, um, presents himself as a Dhamma student rather than as um, walking off the street um, enamored by Buddhism without having any knowledge of it. Most of the Westerners who go to the most of the watts in, in the U.S. don't know anything. Right. And so the kind of conversation that you want to have with a monk there is going to kind of cement the relationship in the Dhamma. Mm. What, what city do you live in? Vancouver in Canada. Vancouver. I am sure that there are watts in Vancouver. In fact, I know there's a watt in Vancouver, and that watt is also, I know for sure, is associated with Atamayata Rama, that in fact, uh, Ajahn Reap helped set up the watt in Vancouver. Yeah, I'll have to look it up. Okay, so yeah, that'll give you something to go look for, to go find some sangha, to start associating with monks, okay? that as good as our number three option is, which is doing an online sangha, almost all of the people on the online sangha are still kind of figuring out how they can really get into the Dhamma as best they can to where the monks that we're talking about have already ordained. They're already got their whole life dedicated to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Hmm. And so associating with monks in Thailand would be the first thing. Associating with monks in the West would be the second thing. And the third option would be to start associating with those Westerners who want to associate with nobles so that we can begin to get it going online. And the more monks we get into the online sangha, the better off we'll be. Hmm. Unfortunately, monks generally don't have good access to internet. Yes. 
Yeah. So I don't expect to have a whole lot of monks come in and join the the uh, online sangha. But that's something that we can shoot for is to get people that, in fact, if you have a new Dhamma student who wants to know the Dhamma, what what does your average Westerner got? They've got a bookstore. They've got Reddit. And they've got these high priced advertised retreats. Yes. And so those people would would benefit greatly by having an online Sangha. Having those who are aspiring to nobles to talk with them and have good advice. Hmm. Yeah, I think that an online Sangha is is valuable. Um, but yeah, the, the benefit of in-person connection, I, I think, is yeah, in, indisputable in terms of the benefit. Like there's there's something that is lost in translation over. Well, if, if, if the whole connection is solely online. Very, very, very few people learn to read without having a teacher. Mm -hmm. Very, very, very few people ever learn how to be an accomplished musician without a teacher. Mm -hmm. I would say even more so with mathematics. Mm -hmm. You just take somebody out of a village and he's going to sit down and do mathematics, not a chance. But in fact, Einstein talked about that in the sense of the reason that he says that he can see so deeply and so far into it is because he had the shoulders of giants to stand on. Yeah, you'd have to reinvent. Now, go ahead. You'd have to reinvent the wheel. Precisely. Why should every student have to reinvent the wheel? Why should every bar drunk who's sitting at the bar, half drunk, with a bar with a, a beer in his hand, have to say, "Okay, I'm going to stop drinking now." And that takes not much chance of it. But if he starts associating with people who see the danger in alcohol and will keep reminding him of it and give him other things to do rather than going getting drunk. Okay, and that getting drunk, we can take the alcohol out of it and being drunk in the sense of drunk with power, drunk with competition, drunk with the kind of clothes we wear, shopaholics, they call them. Okay, so there's all kinds of addictions that we can have, and it's better to associate with people who have already come out of their addictions. To guide us, to nurture us, to befriend us, and then in fact, this is part of the reason why um, some people, preachers, popes, high quality monks, etc., like that, are held in such high regard, is because they actually give that kind of value to the people around them. But there's one more thing that needs to go on with that. And that is, is that it cannot be the guru as the only one. That in fact, that's what happened with Goanka. 
that Goenka, uh, even when he was still alive, he didn't do any more teaching, but they taught by giving um, videos, yes, CDs. And now that Goenka is dead, they don't have anyone to take over in his place, not one. Anybody who is going to do it has to leave the Goenka group and go out on his own. To where, in fact, if Goenka had done it correctly, he would have literally dozens, 30, 40, 60 people that could continue in that tradition, but never that happened. But that did happen, in fact, big time at Watch Suen Mok, because I was around a lot of monks who were around each other. That's the real point is, is that when you get one, then you get two. And now you have two teachers, and you get three, and now you've got three teachers, and soon the thing begins to grow. And that's what Sangha is all about, is when you've got eight, 10, 12 teachers that you highly, highly trust, give you the best advice. And when you've got them just living next door to you, That's when it becomes enormously valuable. That's where the value of Sangha is, and it goes to the point of becoming now not just the Buddha himself, because look at what would happen if the Buddha had been such a teacher, but he didn't start the Sangha. Then what would Buddhism be today? It would not exist. It was only because he was wise enough to start assigning teacher roles to other students, like Sariputta, Mahamagala, Mahakasapa, uh, Mahachanda, Ananda, all of these very famous monks were famous because they were teachers and they were in the Sangha. And this is what we need to, surpri- to support now. And that's what Bhikkhu Buddhadasa has in Thailand also. I could just go on and on and on about the number of very, very high monks that are the abbots of many cities, uh, uh, the, let us say the biggest wad in many of the cities are actually students that I knew in the 1980s at Wat Suen Mok. Hmm. Because the towns, they want these guys, and then because they know that they're going to build Sangha, that it's not all about one enlightened guy at our Wat. No, we want everybody at the Wat to take the benefit of being around the noble so that they become noble also. It seems unnatural, like if you have just one person, you know, in that guru role and then there are no other teachers that ever emerge. It seems like that would just be a natural product of, of good teaching that other teachers would eventually sprout up around them. Hmm. I I guess what is it that is it did did Buddha Dasa ever give permission or did he, you know, hand over like did he give people permission to teach or did he invite them to teach or Let me answer the question like this. Imagine that a um, very, very high quality master swordsman 
in Japan. You know, the uh, uh, the katana is a very, very famous sword in the world. Okay, imagine that he's taking that sword out of the furnace, and before he drops it in the cold water for the tempering, he asks the sword, "Do you want to get wet and cool now, or does he t- does the master just throw that sword right into the water?" The, the master throws the sword into the water. He just throws the sword right in the water. Okay, that's what happens. Also, that that in fact did happen to me when I was still a layman at Watsu and Mok. That Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa literally threw me into the water. That's how you teach a baby to swim. You just throw them in, and if they drown, you pick them up before they die. And you throw them in again. A six-year-old, you have to teach them to kick their legs, but an infant, you throw the infant in the water, they'll swim. <laughs> I used to be a lifeguard, so. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. But I know you're talking about, yeah. Uh. Okay. So that's how the, 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 that the monks are trained. They're trained by giving them tempering. Hmm. The example uh, is is that this happened actually at the spiritual theater at, at Watsuan Mo, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and Achan Po, and about half the monks at the Wat, and a whole lot of Westerners and, and mostly Thai uh, lay people were there. This is going to be a talk in English, and I helped Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. He asked me to help him with the talk. So I go in and he starts talking about the Four Noble Truths and he gives a paragraph or two and so I kind of translate what he was saying and I get go back to him for the next piece and he says, you take it from here. He just kicked me into the water and I've got to finish a whole talk in front of 75 people. <laughs> that wasn't the only time. Achan Po has done that to me also. Okay. It's up to you. You go teach. Okay. It sounds it sounds deliberate and very intentional. You know that people are given opportunities to to teach in this trial by fire or throwing in the deep end or you know. Yeah. So why don't you give the Dhamma talk tonight? Would be the way that it's done. <laughs> Why don't I give the Dharma talk? <laughs> yeah. And what that does, in fact, there's um, uh, there's sutras about it. There are five ways to learn. Mm. One is by listening to the teacher. Another one is by discussing it with other students. Another one is by reading. And another one is by chanting. But by far the most intense way of learning the Dharma is by teaching it. Especially if you have the idea that, oh, I should be teaching the Dhamma correctly if I've made a mistake or basically I've, I've said something that I'm not sure of, it's up to me to go look it up in the suttas to verify that what I have just said is correct. And so next time that I say it, I'll have full confidence. Mm. But if we just have the idea, oh, this is the Dhamma, and we're just musing on it on our own, then we possibly won't go look it up. But if we're put under fire, put under pressure that way, 
then we'll go make sure that what we're saying is correct. Right. Like if I know, okay, I'm giving a Dhamma talk tonight on the Four Noble Truths, I'm probably going to want to go and read the sutras and go to Access to Insight and brush up and, you know, um, mm-hmm. and what exactly it is I'm going to teach so that I'm not just riffing <laughs> or flying. That's exactly right. Okay, so that's the whole idea of it. Um, is a public performance Mm. puts us under pressure. Mm. Why does it put us under pressure? Well, it's exactly the same thing as Sangha. In the sense that if you are going to associate and be around nobles, you're kind of in a a pressurized environment to behave in a certain way. Yeah. Just like somebody goes into a bar and sits down and says, oh, I don't drink alcohol. That's going to make a whole bunch of people in that bar pissed off. Why are you here, right? (laughs) What are you, a Bible puffer or something? And so um, uh, the the way that we're looking at it is, is that we do have social norms. Peer pressure. Yes, peer pressure, precisely. That the peer pressure that you're under then conform you get your behavior to conform that for instance uh, uh bullies associate with other bullies etc like that and so they've got a kind of a social norm that they live up to but mm-hmm. when you're living around nobles you have that kind of social norm and a little bit of pressure to get the crap out of them between your ears and start speaking some truth start speaking some wisdom mm-hmm. And this is instinctual. So what we're saying is, is that the Buddha is actually understanding of this instinct and putting us in that kind of situation for our best advantage, our best benefit. Now I think you're beginning to see the value of the Sangha. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now that means that you're going to start intentionally going out and seeking it rather than just thinking that it's a a good idea. Now you can see absolutely it's a good idea and I should actually conform to the social convention that you and I are setting up right this very minute. So now you're beginning to see the social advantage of it Hmm. so that you'll go and you'll look for Sangha. Yeah. yeah and so the people in the West can do that in two ways. One is that they can go and uh, uh, look up the watch, figure out what's going on. Uh, maybe uh, in time, we'll have enough monks so that the monks in America, the Thai monks, can then tell people what what is best to go to. Right now, we don't have that. Right now, all we have is guys have to go find out for themselves. But eventually we'll have that. And then the other side is, is to uh, intentionally find some uh, noble-minded people, like on Skype, for us to associate with. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a plan. Excellent. <laughs> 
Okay, Zach. Well, let's finish now. And yeah. you got a plan. <laughs> so we'll see you online. We'll see you around. Yes. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye.